In Watch Us Dance, Leila Slimani's effervescent new novel, we rejoin the Belhaj family in 1968, a dozen years into the life of an independent Morocco. Amin and Mathilde have completed, it seems, their journey from peasant farmers to paid-up members of the local bourgeoisie. Their daughter Aisha is in Strasbourg, training to be a doctor. They have just built a private swimming pool, and Amin is exploiting his position of a man of power to have extramarital affairs across the city. But these are turbulent times. Students and workers in cities all over the world are in revolt. The consumer society is being born, and the Americans are preparing to put a man on the moon. And then there are the hippies, many of whom are washing up on the shores around Essaouira, hoping to expand their minds and avoid the draft during their stay in this Moroccan port. The Belhaj family, like all families everywhere, are not immune to the effects of these changes, this progress, whatever that may mean. Neither are the new arrivals, friends, lovers and business associates who orbit the family. And nobody will come out unchanged of the six or so years that the novel covers. Watch Us Dance throbs with life and colour and Leila Snemani navigates between the macro and the micro with extraordinary dexterity. It's a novel that somehow sweeps readers up in the tides of history while never shifting their attention from the minutiae of grievances but also affections that crisscross every family. Leila Snemani, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you. Um, I remember when reading um, The Country of Others that even though it's a choric book in a sense, it felt that our way into it as readers, and I suspect your way into it as a writer, was through the character of Mathilde. Um, my sense with this book, certainly as a reader, is that, again, it's a choric piece, but our way in felt like it was through Aisha. Was that the case for you as a writer? And if so, why was Aisha your way into this story? Um, because she's she's 90, almost 90, it's 1968. So it's a time where everything is going to change for this younger generation, the generation of my father, who is Mehdi, and my mother, who is Aisha. So I was interested by their vision of the world. I think that as a child, I was quite fascinated by this generation, mm -hmm. the hippies, you know, yeah. and my mother when, or my father when I used to ask them about their, their use, they would tell me how many parties they did uh. and about the music <laughs> and about the freedom and the conflict of generation with their own parents. So I had maybe a very idealized vision of this generation. But then when I began to read about this period of time, I also discovered that it was a very violent mm -hmm. uh, period, especially for, for Morocco. So I was quite surprised and I asked my mother how is it possible that the only thing you remember and the only thing you, you told us about this period is dancing and mm -hmm. party? And don't you remember the, the violence? And are you aware also that this generation of hippies, the majority of them, they became bankers and mm -hmm. they became lawyers and they made a lot of money and they are the one who, uh, you know, <laughs> we inherited from this generation. So I try. I think that I was, yeah, very interested and very fascinated by the contradiction of, yeah. of this generation. So that's probably why I wanted to write this book through the eyes of, mm -hmm. of Aisha, because she, she lives between two continents. She at the same time, is, she is quite conservative because mm -hmm. she looks very much like her father. But at the same time, she's the witness of uh, all the, the change that are happening in the world. So for me, it was a very, very interesting character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating that date, 1968. I mean, I think particularly all over the world, but I think particularly to French readers and the French consciousness, it has such a weight in uh, in popular culture. And it's interesting to hear you say that sort of, it seems like for, for your mother's generation, they've kind of 
idealized it um, a little bit too. What were some of the most surprising things you discovered that sort of unpicked that um, that vision of 1968 in, in Morocco and, and further around the world? You know, I think it's interesting for this generation of Moroccan because they went, the majority of them went to, to France to, mm-hmm. to study and a lot of them married French women and they mm-hmm. came back to Morocco with, with them. So when they were here, they were very much um, aware about Marxism and they used to read uh, Bansky and Proudhon and all that and they went to the cinema mm-hmm. to, to watch La Nouvelle Vague and uh, they probably... I, I suppose they agreed with the sexual revolution, but when they came back to Morocco, it was much more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. They were like, yes, maybe we are feminist, but not for my sister and not for my uh-huh. wife. I'm feminist for other women, mm-hmm. women elsewhere. So I think for this generation, it's very interesting to see how much they were influenced uh-huh. by the Western values and by this revolution, but absolutely un- unable to... Uh, uh, to applique, uh, to um, yeah, exactly in in Morocco. So, I think especially for a man like my father, my father he he was a Marxist, or he used to claim that he was a, a Marxist, and he claimed that he was a feminist. But at the same time, he would always look at my clothes when I was going to to school, and he would tell me, "No, I don't want you to wear this skirt. Go go back in your room and and put some trousers." So, I think there were. You could say hypocrites yeah. or full of contradiction. Uh, I don't know. But for this African generation, I think it's particularly uh-huh. interesting. I love the tone of voice you use when you say the word Marxist. In <laughs> <laughs> it's dripping with skepticism. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I think that it's so weird that my father was a Marxist for many years. And at the end, he became a banker uh-huh. and uh, he defended capitalism like mm-hmm. many, many of his of his friends. My father had big hair and the beard and uh, uh, he was wearing hippie clothes but at the same time he became a banker so I think that this contradiction is obsessing yeah, me. Yeah 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 well I think we'll come into we'll talk about media a bit later and I think one of the fascinating things about this book is that we, we do see that kind of contradiction and we do see what people might consider a kind of betrayal of values and yet we kind of understand it on a human level as well but we'll, we'll come to that I wanted to Um, stick with this idea of change. Um, at a moment, you write, in this country that for centuries had known nothing but farms and war, all the talk these days was of cities and progress. And readers will probably notice that the um, What Just Dance is about the same size, same length as the country of others, but takes place over a about half the time, if I if I've calculated that correctly. Was there a something for you in the sort of uh, in the writing of it that you you felt when you were studying this? period of history that you felt this kind of acceleration that was more was happening in less time yes absolutely there is a very very interesting acceleration of of time morocco is is changing and you understand i, I understood that it was changing forever the structure of this country the, it's like a civilization that is changing for many many centuries morocco was dominated by the same monarchy with uh, the same religion islam uh, very few immigration morocco uh, in, on the contrary of algeria or tunisia was never conquered by another country before before france it was not conquered by the the ottoman or a little bit by spain but very very little in in, in the north so it's it's a country that has been the same for many 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 centuries and many years and after colonization you had a 
people moving from the countries to the cities mm -hmm. and especially the city of of Casablanca you have also a revolution in terms of the in terms of women in terms of education because for centuries also Moroccan did not go to school yeah. you just had like maybe five percent of Moroccan people who would go to school mm -hmm. and just after the the independence the first thing is this yeah this desire very very strong desire of the population to be educated yeah. uh, to the girl and and boys and it is also going to be very violent because when the king will understand that his population wants to be educated that mm -hmm. they want to read and they want to write so they want also to be able maybe to criticize uh -huh. the situation they are in he's going to react with Um, yeah, with repression, mm -hmm. and he's going to kill his own his own people. So I was very interested by that, by the fact that there is this desire for modernity. Mm -hmm. And you know, here in in the West, we always have this idea that people in the Muslim world they are obsessed by the past, that mm -hmm. they are very conservative, that they don't really have this desire for modernity and future mm -hmm. and progress. But that's not true. Yeah, It's yeah. just that we lived in in regime that make it. It's impossible for us mm -hmm. to have this modernity mm -hmm. and to, yeah. So they gave us this idea that the only thing we can have is mm -hmm. the past and is tradition. So I think that's why it's a very, very important moment in the, the story, not only in the history of Morocco, but in general, in the history of the Muslim countries. Because probably if we didn't have this repression, Morocco would be mm -hmm. a totally different country with yeah. educated people, with probably more equality between men and, and women. So, yeah, when you write a book, you always imagine if mm -hmm. it had been different, what would have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the young women being educated, obviously, as we mentioned, is Aisha. And so she's training to be a doctor in, in Strasbourg. And, of course, so she's essentially gone back to her mother's homeland. Um, and it's 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 fascinating feeling that sort of split personality in Aisha because... Certainly in, um, in, in, in the first book, we had a sense that there was this, this draw to France. She, she felt different in Morocco. She felt perhaps more French, or at least in part French, than more French than the, the people around her. And yet we, we suddenly find in, in Strasbourg, she's very much considered the, the Arab. And this, this has quite a profound effect on, on her vision of the world. I think the whole trilogy is about that, this double thing, double identity, double places... Can you belong to two places? Can you belong to two cultures? Is it possible to be loyal also to two civilization, two religion, two vision of the world? Do you have always or are you forced to, to choose at one point? Are you going to betray one of your culture when you are... Um, in the other one or in the other country. I think that's, of course, something that is obsessing me mm -hmm. uh, as, as a person and as a, as a writer. You know, when I am in France, people consider me very Moroccan. When I am in Morocco, people consider that I am maybe too French. <laughs> when I write a book about Morocco, Moroccan people sometimes are very angry against me because they say that I give a bad image of Morocco and I just want to please French people. So it's always very difficult to explain to people mm -hmm. what it is to have two identities and you know i don't know if you remember this the soccer the soccer game between france and and morocco d during the yeah. the world cup and it's very symptomatic of 
of that, it's impossible to choose. Uh, people always want you to say, but who are you for? Who are really in your heart, in your guts? And it's, it's very difficult. It's like choosing between your mother and your father or between, between your children. So I think that's something I, I try to, to, to explore through the character of Mathilde because Mathilde, in a way, she became a Moroccan. Right. She speaks yeah. Arabic and um, she has roots in this country mm -hmm. and she loves this country. But the character of, uh, of Aisha is even more complex because mm -hmm. she is a Métis, uh -huh. she is mixed race, and uh, she has her very big and frizzy hair. I think also I try to explore the evolution of, of racism. You're not racist in the same way in the 40s or in the 60s, mm -hmm. and then we will see in the next book in the, in the 90s. Yeah. There's yeah. A, an evolution of racism. This, the feeling is the same, the violence is the same, but the way you express it is different. Mm -hmm. And we, we feel that violence really intensely. Um, I guess in a way, with the, particularly the relationship between Aisha and her landlady. Um, and it's not a sort of... Um, it's not an overt violence for for most of the <laughs> for, for most of the the interaction, but the way, and I'm not going to spoil this for for our listeners, but the the Aisha leaves with quite a dramatic, um, extreme gesture, um, and it it really seemed to encapsulate how I, su I suppose the, the 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 how that aggression is felt by 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 somebody who suffers these um, you know what people might term sort of continuous microaggressions uh, throughout. Uh, yeah, throughout and that's, that's something you are told when you are a child. My father and my mother, they always told me, of course, people are going to be racist with you sometimes. And, you know, I have big hair and, and my, my skin is brown, so people, they can see that mm -hmm. I come from Africa. So I had this kind of experience, but my parents always told me, don't react, mm -hmm. be be cool and don't, don't answer, it will happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I love the character of, of Aisha, because she, at the beginning, she's like, okay, I'm not going to react, but sometimes, and even when yeah. she was a child, but sometimes she has this violence and uh -huh. this desire to react in a very <laughs> particular way. People will, will read about this. But uh, yes, I was interested by that, by the fact that there is a point where you just want to mm -hmm. fight back and yeah, you just yeah, want yeah. yourself also to be very violent. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's also something, of course, which her, you know, which is drawn to to Western culture, Western aesthetics. So, I guess the kind of symbolic way that this rep is represented is that she straightens her hair, um, and you know, and keeps it straight when she when she when she goes back to Morocco. So there's definitely this, uh, I guess, this tension between wanting to be or being proud of her Moroccan origin, her African origins, but also. Wanting to embrace, I guess, this, this new sort of like international aesthetic, which is... Yes, which is absolutely. And, um, you know, in this book, I'm very much obsessed with hair mm -hmm. because you have also the hair of the hippies. Course, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, when the hippies began to come to, to Morocco, Moroccan people were a little bit sceptic, but at ah. the same time, I think that um, they welcomed them and they arrived in mostly in Tangier and, uh, and Essaouira, yeah. where their big hair and they were smoking hashish yeah. and uh, listening to music and having sex in a way that Moroccan people probably didn't understand. But at one point, because of the, the drugs mostly, Moroccan people became much more... Um, more sceptical and they decided that they will not welcome hippies yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. So at the, the custom in Tangier, you had 
people with like scissors and mm. they would cut the hair of the, the hippies and mm. telling them if you want to come to Morocco you have to cut your hair yeah, yeah, so yeah. there was also this idea in this generation that freedom and um, a certain um, uh, how, how could I say that a certain revolt um, against the, the, the parents against mm. the yeah the generation of their parents would express itself through the hair the long yes. hairs um You mentioned the decolonization um, earlier, and it, we get a really interesting sense of this strange kind of, I guess, pact almost, which the uh, the formerly colonized people and the former colonizers have entered into at this point in Moroccan history, almost to pretend as if it hadn't happened at all. Um, considering where uh, Morocco went after this particular period, was that a surprise for you to discover that Um, there was this kind of almost strange kind of interregnum where everyone just kind of pretended that uh, colonization was a was almost kind of a historical mistake that we weren't going to talk about. Yeah, exactly. I think that what was a surprise is that I never asked myself the question. When I was a child, I was half French, half Moroccan. I went to French school and I never heard in the mouth of Moroccan people bad things about France. Mm -hmm. It's not like Algeria where you can feel there's still a lot of anger and uh, sometimes bitterness towards uh, French people and even French culture or French language. In Morocco, it's absolutely not the case. People, they are very positive uh, when it comes to the French culture. People are very proud to speak French. And I remember when I was a child that the king of Morocco, Hassan, Hassan II, when he was on TV, he would speak French mm -hmm. and very good, beautiful French, mm -hmm. quoting Pascal or Montesquieu or Bossuet. And the king of Morocco, he used to say, uh, I have a double culture uh -huh. and I'm very proud of speaking mm -hmm. two languages. Today, it would be very weird to hear, uh -huh. um, you know, not only the, the king of Morocco, but like a leader of an Arab country mm -hmm. saying, I have a double culture. But at that time, it was absolutely normal. Look, for me, I never asked myself, but this colonization, it was not that's nice it was not that cool of course there must have been some violence and conflict so it took me years and many 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 books and um, uh, interviews and questions to understand that it was not as nice and as easy as my parents and in general the elite of Morocco tried to 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 tell me but I think that there was a certain complicity between the Moroccan elite and the French with this idea that they the, the Moroccan elite they always kept kept the power uh, yeah. e even during colonization so when the French left they say Nothing is going to change. It's like in the, the, the book Le Guépard. Nothing, everything changed, but nothing changed. Yeah, yeah, There, yeah. And in Morocco, it's always this question of are really things changing or not? Yeah. This is a very interesting country because at the same time, there's a certain permanence of a lot mm -hmm. of things through the monarchy, through the religion, and through a certain way of life. And at the same time, This is a country that is changing very, very, yeah, very yeah, fast yeah. in other fields. So that's what I'm trying also to explore in, in, in this book. So the fact that, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Mathilde and Amin, through their kind of relentless hard work, um, have essentially accessed the, the bourgeoisie, um, accessed the, the... I mean, would you, would you say they've accessed the elite or is that, is that still... The bourgeoisie, I would uh -huh. say, not the elite, because the elite 
were more in the big cities mm -hmm. like Rabat or right. Casablanca. There were from the, yeah, I would say the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. But was, was their story in that sense quite an atypical one then? They were sort of, uh, it wasn't something which, you know, most, let's say, peasant farmers who started as a mean started could access that. That was really kind of quite an, an unusual. Yes, progress. it was quite unusual. And actually for my grandparents, it was very difficult. For my, my grandmother was very happy to mm -hmm. become a bourgeoise. Mm -hmm. She was, I think, very happy to have enough money to build the, the swimming pool mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, to take care of her children and to buy things for them and to uh, also be able to spend money for the, for my mother to mm -hmm. study and the, the other children. So my grandmother, she was quite happy. But for my grandfather, it was very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as he became a bourgeois, he was always very, very depressed. Mm -hmm. He felt that maybe he did something wrong, that mm. this money and this, yeah, this opulence he was living in, he, I think he always felt he stole it from mm. someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was afraid of jealousy. He was afraid of people coming to his house asking him, why? Mm. Why is it you who have this and not, and not me? So I, I think that he got more and more and more depressed uh, mm becoming a bourgeois it was something really difficult for him and um, i'm very moved by that by mm -hmm. this idea that um yeah it doesn't give you happiness Suc uh -huh. success and money doesn't come with with happiness myself as a as a writer people ask me always about the prix goncourt and about mm -hmm. the success and sometimes i just want to tell them but you know when you are alone at night or when you are cold or when you mm -hmm. are sad it the changes same. nothing. Mm -hmm. Success has no taste, has no smell. It's it's nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I think also in the case of Amin, it shows how, in a sense, how rooted a class consciousness can be. Um, like I think a lot of the the uncertainties he had, a lot of the, almost shame he seems to have about his success, comes from I guess a vision of the world that was ingrained in him when he was very young and he just never been able to share. Yeah, it comes also from what we were saying before. He comes from an old world, uh, mm -hmm. another Morocco, a Morocco of tradition, a Morocco where you're not supposed to show the money you have. Uh, and even I think a Morocco where money was not that important. What mm -hmm. was important was respectability, mm -hmm. was religion, was how, how much you take care of the, the community. And now at the end of the 60s, people want big cars, they want to go to the city, they want to listen to music and to organize parties, they want to have swimming pool. Mm -hmm. And the swimming pool is a very interesting symbol yeah. for, for, I mean, it's impossible to understand how her, uh, his wife wants so much this, this swimming pool because for him, she's going to get naked and to swim in right. front of the people who works on, on the farm. They are going to use water and we are in, in Morocco in the, in the 60s. There is no water, you know, it's a, almost a desertic country. So for him, it's very difficult to, to understand. So he belongs to a world that is disappearing. Uh -huh. And that's why you have also so much conflict between him and his children and especially Selim. They don't understand each mm -hmm. other. They can't understand each other. And I think that there, there are a lot of similarities between this period of time uh -huh. and nowadays. Yeah. I think that today also there is this conflict of 
of generation between uh -huh. young people and ourselves because they don't understand our uh -huh. way of life. They don't understand the fact that maybe we're not uh, involved enough in the question mm -hmm. of climate change and uh, sexism and mm -hmm. all this. And I understand them, but I really think that today there is also this very, very big conflict and maybe violent yeah. conflict of generation. I think there's, there's something really interesting about it. Maybe it's also a perennial conflict in a sense that um, particularly in the situation of a family where you have the, the, the mother and father who kind of came from nothing. They did everything to provide their kids with this security, safety, opportunity. And, but then there's kind of a disconnect because their kids are never going to understand. I mean, I was thinking of, funnily enough, the TV series Succession when I was reading this. And, the, you know, the character of Logan Roy who built it up and then he's got these, these three kind of useless kids. Yeah. I mean, the kids in, in, in your book are not useless, but they're, they definitely don't see life as the same struggle that Amin sees it as. Yeah, and at the same time, that's probably what their parents wanted. They right. wanted them to have like a better life and not to be uh, as anxious as they were with nightmares all the night mm. because how are we going to finish the, the, the months and it's too difficult. So that's probably what they wanted. But at the same time, I think that Amin is quite disappointed by his his son. He's like, you don't you don't understand how 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 hard I had to work for you to have the life you, you, you have now. And uh, I think also that Selim is not completely conscious of how much, of how important it is for his mm -hmm. father to transmit something to his son. Th this question of uh, inheritance is also very important in, in the book. As I said before, I mean, comes from a world where a father will give something to his son, mm -hmm. who will give to his son a, a name, yeah. a place in the world, and a land, land and I was going to say, a land, particularly that yeah, connection a land. to the land. And Selim, he, he doesn't care. And I think that it's absolutely terrible. And for for someone like like Amin, everything is uh, he he did is probably going to to disappear, yeah, and no yeah. one is is caring about it. So I think it's uh, yeah he suffers mm. a lot from that. Yeah, and then ironically, you have this kind of counterpoint to his view of himself, his kind of shame, his of being bourgeois. You have Mehdi who is, as you mentioned earlier, sort of a young idealist. So Mehdi is um, a, a friend of the boyfriend of one of Aisha's friends. Um, I think I expressed that right. Uh, and, he, um, and he becomes uh, Aisha's uh, love interest uh, early in the book. And, and Mehdi, he, well, his nickname is Karl Marx. So we know very early on where he stands um, politically. And he basically tells Aisha, you know, you're like, you're... Your bourgeois, it doesn't matter if you're Moroccan or not, you're, you know, your people are exploiting, um, exploiting uh, the, you know, the, the poor. And yet at the same time, Mehdi comes, you have this sense it comes from a very kind of intellectualized worldview. And there's quite an irony that the way he talks about Aisha's family, and I mean, I guess in particular, seems i don't know sort of disconnected from, from completely reality in some completely ways. but you know i interviewed a lot of my parents friends who went to university with them and i, I remember one of her one of his friends she she told me but you know we were all marxist now mm. you forget about that but at yeah. that time in the in the 60s we were all marxist we were like 20 22 mm. and all saying well, yeah we're going to make the revolution and all this so 
for us it's quite exotic it's uh, it's funny but for them it was some, the majority i think mm -hmm. of of students were were marxist and having these big theories about the future and about the revolution mm -hmm. and and all this so i wanted also not to make fun of them but there is a certain irony in the way i i deal with with midi and they are fascinated by alejo carpentier mm -hmm. who is uh, in in rabat at that time and uh, by roland Barthes, who yes. is also a teacher, they, they live in a very, um, as you said, it's very abstract. Mm -hmm. They live in books, they live in cine club, and they speak about uh, a movie that was uh, made in Italy or in France, and they live in, in Rabat or Casablanca. Uh -huh. So it's a very weird uh, time yeah. and very weird generation considering that. Yeah, It's a funny thing to, to read, and I wonder if it's, it's a similar thing for you to write it. It's sort of like, I feel... Uh, in a weird kind of way, I feel these are kind of my people. Yeah. <laughs> and yet at the same time, I can see the the kind of the ridiculousness or the irony of, of these positions. Yeah, I, I, I love them, you know, I, I love them very much. And I think all my books are about probably disappointment uh -huh. or about how do you deal with reality. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of dreams, you have a lot of desire, and one day it's just reality. Mm -hmm. And you have to accept it. Uh, you know, in Adele, it's a disappointment towards sex. In Chanson Douce, uh, The Perfect Nanny, it's about maternity. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that people tell you, you will see when you will become a mother, it's going to be extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And then you're probably disappointed. It's not as beautiful and easy. Mm -hmm. And um, the country of others is also about that. Yeah. The first one is about disappointment of exile mm -hmm. and disappointment of marriage. And this one is about the fact that you're probably disappointed of yourself mm -hmm. when you become an adult. You had dreams, you had ideals, mm -hmm. and you're like, I will never do that. Uh, I will never betray myself, and I will never be like my parents, and I hate the way they mm -hmm. think, I hate the way they live. And then you become like your yeah. parents, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you just want to buy a car and to buy a house and to have a swimming pool yourself. Oh. And so I think that I try to write this with tenderness and with empathy for, for them because we all experience that. Yeah. And the one who don't, I admire them, people mm -hmm. who can still be radicals, but it's, it's difficult because it comes with uh, a lot of loneliness yeah. and um, probably people don't understand you and say, ah, oh, you still, you, you have to become an adult and you uh -huh. have to yeah, get more maturity, but yeah. I think we are, at one point, there is a moment when we are disappointed of yeah. ourselves. That's a fascinating thing, actually, the literature of disappointment. Like, I can't think of many books that sort of treat it so directly. The one that came to mind when you were talking was um, the Saul Bellow book, um, The Adventures of Augie March, yeah. which is kind of... You know, I love this book. refusal to live a disappointed life is what drives the character forward. yeah but you know at the same times when you when you refuse to be disappointed you become crazy mm -hmm. or you become a fanatic uh -huh. because you always want life to be bigger than right. life and you <laughs> always want to have big emotion and it's exhausting mm -hmm. for people who are living with you i think that um you have to accept uh, not to be satisfied all mm -hmm. the time and you have to accept a certain yeah triviality uh -huh. and a certain disappointment it's very difficult and maybe even more for women. Mm -hmm. I think that um, as little girls, we are so much raised in an idealized world mm -hmm. about love. You know, you're going to meet the Prince Charming and then this idea of uh, idealized maternity and uh, idealization also 
uh, of yourself and of women. So I think maybe it's um, even harder for for women because mm. then, yeah, you get mar married, you have children and you're like, and now? And yeah, so yeah. what? Now I'm just going to, yeah, continue like this every day, every day, every day taking care of others. For men, I think it's different because they are raised with this idea of mm. fighting for something uh, and having an ideal and being like a chevalier, you know, mm. with, yeah, great, uh, great ideas and great horizon. For women, it's very different, yeah, yeah, very yeah. different. Yeah, I guess particularly over the last sort of two or three generations as well, where sort of expectations were, were raised in a way, because you put me in mind of something, I mean, you're writing about um, poverty and wealth rather than uh, the diff you know, difference between men and women. But there is this moment, and I'm going to paraphrase it, where you write about sort of for, for poor people, nothing changes in a way there's a sort of the the thing that distinguishes the wealthy from the poor is this this possibility or expectation of change or renewal exactly. or excitement you know there is this, this sentence when you meet someone what's new mm -hmm. what's new and uh, yeah. rich people or people who have a certain yeah culture and such a position in in, in the world things are happening, new yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. You meet people and a new thing in your, in your job and uh, maybe you will meet a new lover or things like that. When you meet poor people, you, say, you don't say what's new because mm -hmm. things are just going the same and mm -hmm. the same and the same. There is this repetition of the same because you don't have the time and you don't have the, the opportunity mm -hmm. for new things. It's much more difficult to yeah. experience new things. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Yeah, when we are privileged, like we are, you are always looking for new things. I want to watch a new movie. I mm -hmm. want to write a, a new book. I want to read a new mm -hmm. book. Uh, I want to travel in another country and to discover something new because you have this possibility to be bored. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, I'm bored with this place. I want a new apartment. Yeah. I want a new boyfriend. Um, I think it's very different for mm -hmm. people who don't have this kind of uh, economic or cultural privilege. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's maybe one of the things over since the 19th 60s really this idea of kind of constant renewal constant consumption has spread out perhaps you know not necessarily in the material reality but certainly in the expectations has sort of spread down the class exactly. structure in a way exactly. um there's one uh word that kept coming up in my notes which i don't think features in the book but seems to kind of kind of creep in as a theme is this idea of decadence i think that sort of within the sort of the six years that the, the book takes place, there was this sort of this vision of a, of a new Morocco, which people are losing faith in. I mean, you've already mentioned how people kind of became a bit sort of skeptical about the, the hippies. Um, and also like you see it with the, um, with what happens with the king, the way like, I mean, obviously that is also in response to a few sort of assassination attempts yeah. and it's a very kind of pragmatic um, uh, response. But the way he sort of orientates his government away from perhaps this more sort of Europe-focused, France-focused, sort of open uh, vision to something which feels almost like a, a sort of an ersatz recreation of a certain idea of, um, of an Morocco. old traditional Morocco. Yeah, you know, I think that I'm... 
my generation is very nostalgic of this very short period of time where uh, another Morocco was possible. A Morocco with more equality, a more modern Morocco, open to the rest of the world, open to the ideas also of the, of the rest of the world. And then in 1965, you have the rapt of Mehdi Ben Barka in, in Paris. He's kidnapped in Paris in front of the, of the Lip Brasserie. And then you have the... Uh, riots in in Casablanca where a lot a lot of students and children are going to be killed by by the police and that's the end of this beautiful dream about this open and modern Morocco and I think we are all nostalgic of that what would have happened if Mehdi Ben Barka was not dead and if the king didn't decide to use the police to kill the the children and the and the students and I think that Hassander was very much afraid of the students and he was especially afraid of the influence of Marxism in in Morocco and he used to say that he prefers someone with a weapon than someone with a pen because mm. someone with a pen is always going to at one point become an opponent and uh-huh. um, criticize the, the king or the, the regime. Mm-hmm. So he decided to close school and he decided to uh, stop the expansion of uh, education mm-hmm. in, in Morocco. And uh, I think that's probably the thing that I will never forgive him mm-hmm. because uh, for me that's the, the worst crime to make it impossible for people to be educated. Mm-hmm. When I was a child, so in the 80s, Uh, 80% of women in Morocco couldn't read or write and 7% of, uh, uh, of men. And still today, we are, it's still difficult because mm-hmm. we lost like two generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was on purpose because they, the regime and especially the, the king, Hassan II, he really believed that education was going to be a threat mm-hmm. for for him mm-hmm. so yeah it's yeah there is a, a decadence because mm-hmm. when there is no education there is of course a, a decadence but it's very very sad because uh-huh. something different could have happened yeah, and yeah, we yeah. lost this opportunity do you think that kind of anti-intellectual climate fed into the sort of trajectory of someone like Mehdi for example where you know he had this sense that you know he had these ideals he was a you know a, law, a, a professor at the university and then sort of had this sense of like you know, this is, this is not, there's not a future in this because of the way the country is going. Yeah, and, um, you know, I have a lot of empathy for him because people could say that he's a coward because he decides to work in the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a Marxist and then he decides to become an inspector des finances and to become a banker. So it's very weird. People could think that they don't understand the contradiction of mm-hmm. Mehdi. But at one point, I think that uh, at the end of the 60s, the question was, should I become um, a part of the system and mm-hmm. survive? Or I, I, I am an intellectual, but I can die. Uh-huh. I can be kidnapped, I can be killed, I can go to a prison and totally disappear. So I think that he's just a young man who mm-hmm. wants to survive. He wants to live. He's in love with a woman. Mm-hmm. He wants to get married with her. He knows that this woman, Aisha, she is the daughter of a bourgeois mm-hmm. and that he will never let her get married with mm-hmm. a Marxist who is a teacher in the university. So I think that he makes a choice that we can all understand that it's the choice of surviving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a, a moment which I'm, I'm, I'm sure will come up in, in the next book where you kind of give us many, I think it's 30 years later, kind of looking back and you say from a prison cell. Um, and there's just this, this sort of sense of because at the you know the moment we see Medi, okay, he's he has turned his back on what some might consider his values, but he seems to be on the rise. He seems to be kind of 
establishing himself. And um, is it hard for you when you know what's coming <laughs> to sort of to not put that in the minds of your characters? Uh, yeah, sometimes it's difficult and it was especially difficult with the character of Mehdi because he is inspired, as I said, by my father and my father went to prison when he was um, 60 years old, mm -hmm. when I was 20 and he died just after. My father was never a hero and I think that when I was a child, he, in a way, he regretted not to be a hero mm -hmm. and um, he was even a little bit jealous of people from his generation who went to prison and then were heroes and who fought for their ideas. Uh, I think he was, yeah, quite ashamed. So it's weird at the age mm. of 60, he went to prison and not for his idea. He uh. went to prison because he was a banker and he was accused of corruption and things like that. So I think it's very interesting for someone who regrets not to have been to prison uh, before okay. and then at 60, it's, it's sad and at the same time, it's quite ironic. So uh, for me, it was interesting to, yeah, to, to, to give to the reader this opposition between the fact that he's going to go, but much later in a very different context and for a very different reason, uh. he's going to go in prison and then have regrets uh, uh, about his destiny and about the choice he, he made. But I think it's something that we all experience. Mm -hmm. At one point, we sometimes have regret. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have taken this decision. Or, And um, yeah, that's something also I wanted to, to explore. Um, yeah, how do we make a decision? And um, what Sometimes it happens much, much, much later. You have mm -hmm. to assume the consequences of your act maybe 30 years later, but that's just destiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been very open about how the book is inspired by your family story. How difficult is it as a writer of fictions before to sort of... Do, do, you, do you try and stick as close to the story as possible? Or are there moments when there's sort of the novelist's instinct comes in and you want to give something certain beats or certain rhythms or certain kind of resonances which the real story didn't have no actually it's not that close to the real story um it, it's close in terms of age in mm. terms of jobs because my mother is actually a doctor and my father was a, a banker but i'm not sure it's really close when it comes to personality mm. my mother is not exactly like aisha and my father not like Mehdi. and as soon as i begin to write as mm. soon as uh, i'm using languages it's fiction ah. immediately and you know when i write uh, a scene with aisha and Mehdi falling in love truth is I absolutely have no idea what happened between my parents and uh, when I'm writing a sexual scene between uh. Mehdi and Aisha I don't picture my parents in my head Probably because it, it would yeah exactly it would be terrible so no for me it's immediately fiction uh. even if it's a way for me not only to pay tribute to them but to continue a conversation that ended because they, they died, my grandmother, my grandfather, my father. So it's just a way for me to, to stay longer with people I love. And I also think that you never really know people you are living with uh, and you never know members of your own family. Yeah, yeah. So 
I decided, okay, I will never know my father, but I have the opportunity to invent my father, to imagine who he, he was. Yeah. So maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe he's reading it in, in paradise and he's furious because he considers it's, not, it's absolutely not what he was thinking or it's not his vision of, of the world. But yeah, I think that's my freedom as a, as a writer mm -hmm. to... Yeah, to be able to imagine my own family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and just to finish, I mean, before we started recording, you mentioned that you're coming to the end of Volume Three, which is this is a trilogy, so it's the end of this particular project. Um, maybe I should save this question for hopefully one more talk in a few years' time. But since it's still so fresh for you, do you feel having completed or more or less completed this project, some sort of sense of catharsis connected to your family story, or? some sort of sense of having got to know your family in a way that you didn't know before you began the project? Yeah, but um, not for the best. I, I, I mean, I mean, it's very difficult, actually. Uh, uh, when I began this project, uh, I couldn't have thought that I was going to dig so deep and that I was going to discover things also that... Um, yeah, that made me very, that made me suffer, mm -hmm. the very dark uh, things about my family, about myself, about my identity mm -hmm. also, about how much the world changed, mm -hmm. about Morocco, as, as we said before, and um, all this idealization maybe that I had uh, about my country and about the 60s. But also the fact that, you know, when I came to France, at the, it was in 1999, it was a very different country from, from now, and Europe was very different. I remember that my father, he believed that one day Morocco was going to, be, to uh, belong to European Union. It was a very different, very different time, the qu questions of migration, of, uh, of racism, of... Uh, um, I don't this violence and this hatred was not as present as mm -hmm. as today. So I think that what I was trying to do in terms of exploring this double identity, it leads me to a lot of melancholy uh -huh. because I feel more and more that it was a utopia, mm -hmm. that this education my parent gave me, the idea that you can be two things, mm -hmm. that you can belong to two continents, two civilization, two culture. I feel it's more and more difficult uh -huh. and that you are always forced to pressure to choose mm -hmm. and that we live in a time and a society obsessed by singularity. You have always to define your identity in terms of gender, of sexuality, mm -hmm. of race. Uh, uh, you are with me or you are against mm -hmm. me. You have to belong to a very small and small and smaller community and my education was the exact opposite it was the idea of cosmopolitanism and that you you don't have to define yourself all the time you can just be a human being and when i say that now people look at me like if i was <laughs> totally crazy I, I look i know that I, it looks ridiculous now so yeah i think that it was really hard for me uh -huh. to write this this trilogy at the end yeah it yeah. It shaped me a lot. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? There's something really, I suppose, particularly, I guess, the 60s generally. And uh, for our listeners, of course, they can't see you. You're one, wearing a wonderful T-shirt of the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> but like there did seem to be a moment where a, 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 a different world was at least presented as possible. And the question of whether that was always kind of a utopian dream that was never going to happen or whether for very specific reasons it was betrayed and destroyed, I think it's... Maybe not a question we're ever going to answer, but I think it's really a rich um, theme for 
for yeah, writers um, and novelists and you know it's very in, it's very yeah. interesting because for the the booker prize we had a lot of um of dystopia mm. a lot of very dark and uh very pessimistic book mm. about the the future and especially climate change or um violence migration and all that and i was um telling myself that we we don't have utopias anymore. Uh-huh. Even in cinemas yeah. or in literature, no one would write a, a utopia because no one believes that the future can be better uh-huh. than the present. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's so sad. I think that my the generation of my parents, they were very lucky to have the possibility to believe that future was going to be better. And maybe... When I was young, um, in a country like Morocco and in general in Africa, uh, we believed that probably the future would be better. Wow. We will have access to progress and mm-hmm. to education and to medicine. But now, even for, for us, even for my generation, I think that the vision that we have of future is very, very, mm-hmm. very dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't want to leave it on here. <laughs> <laughs> Utopia is dead. <laughs> Utopia is dead. Long live <laughs> Utopia. Yeah, um. exactly. Long live Utopia. I think it's important to have big dreams. Mm-hmm. Even if you know it's not going to realize exactly as you dreamt it, but it's very important to have big dreams and it's important to continue to write Utopias and to film Utopias and to transmit also to our children a certain sense of of Utopia. You know, the Beatles. It's important to imagine. <laughs> yes. we, we should still continue like to imagine. Or like our friend March as well. Yeah, There's exactly, a, exactly. Refusal to live a disappointed life. Leila, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you so today. Much. Um, Watch Us Dance is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company from the day of its release, uh, from our bricks and mortar store, from our website, or from your local independent bookstore, wherever you may be. Uh, All that's left for me to say is thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favorite app, or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.